You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 337 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. As y'all recall, in the last episode, we covered the federal retreat to Cemetery Hill on the afternoon of Wednesday, July 1st, 1863, after the 1st and 11th Corps lines north and west of Gettysburg collapsed under the weight of the Confederate pressure applied by troops from Hill's Corps and Ewell's Corps. And now with this episode, now that we've got the Federals back to Cemetery Hill, and with more Yankees arriving on the scene, or on their way, in the form of Slocum's 12th Corps and most of Sickles' 3rd Corps, but with this episode, we want to turn our attention to the Confederate side of things that afternoon and evening. That evening, with daylight fading fast and with additional federal troops not long in arriving on the scene, fears of a Confederate attack on Cemetery Hill began to fade. As things settled down, Winfield Scott Hancock sent a message off to Army Commander George Meade, informing him that the fighting at Gettysburg had ended and predicting that they would be able to hold on until night. Hancock reported, quote, I think we can retire. If not, we can fight here, as the ground appears not unfavorable with good troops. Then, when Henry Slocum finally arrived at Cemetery Hill sometime around 7 p.m., Hancock turned over command to him and then made his way back to Army headquarters at Tawnytown, where he reported directly to Meade. Well before Hancock arrived, though, Meade had already scrapped any idea he might have still had of fighting at Pipe Creek and decided to concentrate his forces at Gettysburg, with the orders going out at 7 o'clock that evening for all his lieutenants to march their corps toward the crossroads town. Meade's opponent, Robert E. Lee, had neither expected nor wanted a battle that day, and that afternoon, after his arrival on the scene, Lee had only committed his forces to a renewal of the fighting in an attempt to exert control over the escalating engagement. But still, in the fighting that afternoon, four of his divisions had crippled two Union Corps, driving them from the battlefield north and west of town. After Pender's men had swept the Yankees of the 1st Corps off Seminary Ridge, Lee rode toward town, 
passing by the blood-soaked fields and establishing his headquarters near a small grove of trees along the Chambersburg Pike, across from a small stone house belonging to the widow Mary Thompson. From there, Lee could see Union forces rallying on the high ground of Cemetery Hill, south of town. Today, if you visit Gettysburg, you can park your car, walk to the very crest of Cemetery Hill, and stand across Baltimore Street from the gatehouse. You can see the Soldiers National Cemetery extending behind Evergreen Cemetery, and if you turn around, you'll see the equestrian statue of Winfield Scott Hancock, with his hand reaching out toward the high ground of Cemetery Hill. Since so many of the decisions made during the Battle of Gettysburg center on the possession or capture of, quote-unquote, the high ground, it's important for us to have an appreciation of this key piece of terrain of Cemetery Hill. And to stand there today, you can certainly see hints of the geographical elements that made this hill so important tactically to a professional soldier. But in 1863, the crest of Cemetery Hill had little tree cover, and so the trees you see today on the crest of the hill, unfortunately, now prevent a full appreciation of the view available to federal commanders. And commercial expansion now blocks the view to the north towards town. That means we simply can't enjoy the same clear view that so impressed many of the soldiers who stood on this hill over the first three days of July 1863. But nevertheless, it's important for us to understand that Cemetery Hill loomed large in the decision-making processes of the senior commanders of both sides. When the division of Adolf von Steinwehr of the 11th Corps arrived at Gettysburg, he received orders from Otis Howard to occupy the hill. As von Steinwehr reported after the battle, quote, Cemetery Hill is the commanding point of the whole position, and its occupation by our troops had a decisive influence upon the further progress and final result of the battle. And late on the afternoon of July 1st, Robert E. Lee obviously appreciated the significance of Cemetery Hill when he saw federal forces rallying there south of town. Hoping to drive the Federals off the hilltop and gain this key piece of high ground, Lee sent his chief of staff, Major Walter Taylor, galloping off with a message to Dick Yule, telling his Second Corps commander that it was, quote, only necessary to press those people in order to secure possession of heights, end quote. And instructing Yule to seize Cemetery Hill, but only if it was, quote-unquote, practicable. Taylor found Yule in town and discovered that he had already been contemplating an attack on Cemetery Hill. Yule told Taylor that his men would attack, but only if they were supported on their right, that is, supported by troops of A.P. Hill's Corps. Taylor immediately reported this back to Lee. Lee did have some fresh troops available in the form of Richard Anderson's division of Hill's Corps, which, at some 7,000 strong, 
was by itself equal to the federal force then on Cemetery Hill. But Lee, of course, had no way of knowing this, and with the head of Longstreet's corps still six miles away, Lee decided to hold Anderson's men back as a general reserve. Of Hill's other troops, Heath's division and two of Pender's brigades had been badly mauled and were in no condition to continue the attack. Lee sent word of this back to Yule, telling him that if Cemetery Hill was to be carried, it would be entirely up to him and his men. The willingness Yule had initially professed in attacking Cemetery Hill quickly faded once he rode south along Baltimore Street and got a better look at the enemy defenses on the hilltop. Yule decided it was too heavily defended, and besides, if he was to launch an attack, it would have to be made through the town with little, if any, artillery support, since there were no good positions to place his cannons. In addition, Yule was aware that Rhodes' division had sustained heavy losses in its attacks against the north end of the First Corps line that afternoon, and like much of Hill's corps, they were not in any kind of condition to attack again. And while Early's division had suffered far fewer losses in its attack against the 11th Corps, its brigades were now widely scattered in the streets of the town. What was more, after Jubal Early rode into Gettysburg, he received an alarming report from Extra Billy Smith, whose brigade had advanced east of town on the far left of the Confederate line. Extra Billy reported sighting what seemed to be a large federal force advancing from the east along the York Pike. This report would later prove to be incorrect, but in the absence of any rebel cavalry to determine its accuracy, it caused Early, with Ewell's approval, to send John Gordon's brigade out to support Extra Billy. And so, with two of his brigades out in the countryside east of town, guarding the York Pike against this phantom menace, Early was left with only his two remaining brigades, under Hayes and Avery, who formed up on the eastern outskirts of Gettysburg, along Weinbrenner's Run and near the Henry Culp farmhouse, where they came under fire from Union artillery on McKnight's Knoll between Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill, and from other federal guns on Cemetery Hill itself. For all of these reasons, Dick Yule prudently decided against an attack on Cemetery Hill. He thought that, considering the circumstances, it was simply not quote-unquote practicable. But Dick Yule hadn't entirely given up. Having decided against attacking Cemetery Hill, his focus turned to Culp's Hill, believing that if his men could secure that piece of high ground, they would be in a position to threaten both the Federal right flank and rear, and thus render the Yankees' position on Cemetery Hill untenable. And here we'll once again put in a plug for having a map handy, so that you can see where all of these landmarks are located on the battlefield. A good overall Civil War atlas is our old standby, Echoes of Glory by Time Life, while our go-to Gettysburg-specific map book is Phil Lano's excellent Gettysburg Campaign Atlas. Yep, 
Uh, either one of those will get you through our Gettysburg story arc in good shape. But at any rate, Yule's subordinates agreed with his assessment of the importance of Culp's Hill, with Early allegedly warning his one-legged corps commander that if he didn't seize Culp's Hill that night, then, quote, it would cost you 10,000 men to get up there tomorrow. To seize Culp's Hill, Yule called upon his 3rd Division, commanded by Allegheny Johnson, which was just then approaching Gettysburg from the west, having begun the day, unlike Rhodes and Early's divisions, on the other side of South Mountain, and by Wednesday afternoon, having already marched 25 miles along the Chambersburg Pike in a vast procession of Confederate infantry and wagons. Johnson had ridden into Gettysburg ahead of his men and reported to Yule. After a brief meeting, Yule sent Johnson off with orders to bring up his division, march it around to the east side of town, and then seize Culp's Hill if he found it unoccupied. By this time, Robert E. Lee, like George Meade, had already decided that he would commit to a battle at Gettysburg, regardless of whether Yule was successful that night in securing the high ground south of town. Lee's decision to fight at Gettysburg drew an immediate objection from his longest-serving and most trusted senior subordinate, James Longstreet. Shortly after 5 p.m., Lee's old war horse arrived at Army headquarters having ridden well ahead of the troops of his first corps as they continued to snake their way over South Mountain. As Lee and Longstreet rode south along Seminary Ridge, their eyes turned eastward toward the Union positions on the high ground on the other side of town. Longstreet didn't like what he saw. Throughout the campaign, up until this point, James Longstreet was under the impression that Lee had undertaken the drive north with the intention of luring the Army of the Potomac after them and then taking up a favorable defensive position, thus forcing the Federals to attack and not the other way around. In other words, James Longstreet understood it was Lee's intention to conduct an offensive campaign while seeking a defensive battle. Longstreet even later alleged that Lee had promised him as much, a claim that Lee would deny, and, in fact, that evening on Seminary Ridge, the Confederate Army commander would very quickly set Longstreet straight about his intentions. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Seeing federal troops in position on Cemetery Hill, Longstreet suggested that the Confederate Army disengage and swing around the enemy left, moving south in order to get between Meade's forces and Washington. But Lee would have none of this. Pointing towards Cemetery Hill, Robert E. Lee emphatically stated that, quote, if the enemy is there tomorrow, we must attack him. Longstreet protested, telling Lee, quote, if the enemy is there, it is because he is anxious that we should attack him. A good reason, in my judgment, for not doing so. But Lee was not going to change his mind. As Longstreet later wrote, he believed that on July 1st, the Confederate Army commander, quote, got a taste of victory, end quote. And Longstreet did not believe that Lee's appetite was yet satisfied. Some students of the battle, engaging in the ever-popular game of what if, have enthusiastically taken up the if only Lee had listened to Longstreet banner, and declared that if only Lee had adopted this proposed flanking maneuver, then things would have turned out much differently for the Confederates. However, they ignore the fact that following such a course of action would have been incredibly tricky and not entirely feasible. After all, Lee still had no idea as to the whereabouts of the rest of the Army of the Potomac, and Stuart's cavalry command had yet to arrive at Gettysburg to be on hand to properly screen any such movement to the south by the rebel army. Longstreet's plan was also predicated on the assumption that Meade would simply passively remain in place while the Army of Northern Virginia maneuvered around him, which was, in reality, a very unlikely scenario. At any rate, later, in his official report of the campaign, Lee would explain his reasons for giving battle at Gettysburg by saying, quote, It had not been intended to deliver a general battle so far from our base unless attacked. But coming unexpectedly upon the whole federal army at Gettysburg, to then withdraw through the mountains with our extensive trains would have been both difficult and dangerous. At the same time, we were unable to await an attack as the country was unfavorable for collecting supplies in the presence of the enemy. A battle had, therefore, become, in a measure, unavoidable, and the success gained on July 1st gave the hope of a favorable issue. End quote. We'll talk in a few minutes about how Lee chose to spin things in that report, but for now, we'll stick with what was happening on July 1st, and having thus resolved to fight it out at Gettysburg, 
Lee began weighing his options on how best to go about positioning his forces in order to favorably follow up on the success that his troops had gained that day. After a disappointed Longstreet departed to return to his command, Lee saddled up and rode into town, where he met with Yule, Early, and Rhodes, each of whom reported that although their men were still full of fight, the enemy lines to their front on Cemetery Hill were formidable, and their own position was not at all conducive to offensive action. Hearing this, Lee asked if it might not be better then for Ewell to pull his troops out of town, march them south around behind Seminary Ridge, and take up position on the army's right flank, thus threatening the enemy's more exposed left. But Ewell and his two subordinates balked at this idea, arguing that such a move would demoralize the men who had just fought so hard that day to gain possession of the town. Deciding not to press the issue, Lee returned to his headquarters, but once there, he thought better of it and sent instructions back to Yule, telling him that if he felt he couldn't successfully carry Cemetery Hill that night, he was to abandon the town and take up position on the army's right. This prompted Yule to ride to army headquarters and again voice his objections to such a movement this time informing Lee of his new plan to occupy Culp's Hill with Allegheny Johnson's division and thus outflank the Federals on Cemetery Hill. After listening to Yule, Lee again relented and did not press the issue of moving the Second Corps. And so Dick Yule returned to his headquarters, again issuing orders for Johnson to occupy Culp's Hill if he had not already done so. But the response he got was not at all what Yule had wanted or had hoped to hear, because Allegheny Johnson told him that Culp's Hill was already occupied by the enemy. It was well after nightfall when Allegheny Johnson deployed his division east of Gettysburg and prepared for what promised to be a perilous advance in the darkness up the steep, heavily wooded, boulder-studded slopes of Culp's Hill. However, before moving forward, Johnson naturally wanted to determine if the hilltop was indeed unoccupied and his for the taking. Johnson sent forward a scouting party some 25 men who crept forward cautiously and quietly. In the darkness, the rebels picked their way up the slopes of Culp's Hill and directly into a federal picket line. A few scattered shots rang out, and two of the Confederates were captured. The rest fled. On their way back to report what had happened, the survivors of this harrowing expedition themselves happened upon and captured a federal courier who was bearing a dispatch addressed to Henry Slocum from 5th Corps Commander George Sykes. Sykes was notifying Slocum that his 5th Corps had arrived in a position just four miles east of Gettysburg and that it would be resuming its march to the battlefield at 4 a.m. the next morning. That meant that not only did Johnson discover that Culp's Hill was already occupied by the enemy, but he also learned that, out in the darkness, an entire Federal Corps was just a few miles away on his left flank. 
In light of this information, Johnson wisely decided to hold his position and thus ended any chance the Confederates might have had of gaining the high ground south of Gettysburg that Wednesday night. In the end, Lee's forces had crushed two federal corps on July 1st, but the victory was an incomplete one since the Yankees were able to hold on to the key pieces of high ground south of town. Having committed himself to the offensive and determined to renew his attacks the following day, the question now on Lee's mind was where best to strike the enemy. And while Lee considered his options, George Meade, at the end of just his fourth day as commander of the Army of the Potomac, arrived on Cemetery Hill, having set out from Tawnytown at 10 p.m., riding north toward Gettysburg in the moonlight. Meade had already talked with Hancock about the nature of the ground south of town, and he now asked his other generals their thoughts. "'Is this the place to fight the battle?' Meade asked Otis Howard. "'I am confident we can hold this position,' Howard replied. The others agreed, including Henry Slocum, who mentioned simply that the ground was, quote, "'good for defense,' and Dan Sickles, who told Meade that it was, quote, a good place to fight from. After listening to his generals speak favorably of the ground the army occupied, Meade's famous reply was, quote, Well, I am glad to hear you say so, gentlemen, for it is too late to leave it. As has already been mentioned in his initial report with regard to the Gettysburg Campaign, dated July 31, 1863, Robert E. Lee stated that, quote, It had not been intended to fight a general battle at such a distance from our base unless attacked by the enemy, end quote. That Lee wasn't being entirely truthful in making such a statement is obvious. His northernmost base in Virginia was Winchester, after it was taken by Dick Yule. Winchester itself was some 90 miles from Stanton, the nearest railhead. Simply because of the distances involved, and considering his extended and tenuous lines of communication and supply, Lee was surely aware when he entered Pennsylvania that any battle would be fought a long way from quote-unquote our base. And then the, quote, unless attacked by the enemy portion of his statement can also be dismissed as little more than nonsense. We say that because when he crossed the Potomac and then entered Pennsylvania, Lee certainly couldn't have been under any illusion that the federal reaction to his movement would be anything other than offensive in nature. That's because once Lee was on northern soil, it would have been imperative, both strategically and politically, for the Army of the Potomac to confront him. So, Lee's words in his report are just that, fine words, but they certainly bear little resemblance to his actual strategy. We think that British General J.F.C. Fuller, writing in 1929, accurately described Lee's actual strategy when he said the Confederate commander, quote, rushed forth to find a battlefield to challenge a contest between himself and the North. 
As we've said before, we think the primary reason that Lee went north in the summer of 1863 was to strike a blow. He was seeking a decisive battle with the Army of the Potomac, a battle in which he would defeat the enemy army on northern soil, scoring a tremendous victory that would go a long way toward weakening the North's will to continue the fight against the Confederacy. It goes without saying that with regard to execution, if an army commander is going to undertake a high-risk, strategically offensive maneuver like invading Pennsylvania, he had better do it with great care, especially if he's moving into enemy territory with extended lines of communication and supply and no guaranteed manpower advantage over said enemy. Yet the fact is that Lee entered into battle at Gettysburg on July 1st without essential control of his army. We've already talked about Lee's failure with regard to reconnaissance, which stemmed from his mistake in allowing Jeb Stuart to ride off away from the rest of the army. There really is no excuse for the Confederates entering battle at Gettysburg on July 1st with no idea where the various parts of the Army of the Potomac were located. This command failure, with regard to reconnaissance, was Lee's as the Army commander. Lee's second command failure involves the onset of the battle on July 1st. Rather than choosing, with the greatest care, a spot to fight the enemy, Lee instead committed himself to fighting on what was simply a chance battlefield. Returning to Lee's unless-attacked condition in his report, well, he wasn't attacked at Gettysburg. His forces initially attacked and were the aggressor for three days. As a result of the initial attack, a battle occurred on July 1st, not by plan, but by chance. Had Lee seriously intended to avoid a chance battle, he could have maintained such control over his various formations and issued such strict orders to his corps commanders that a chance battle would not have occurred. We think the battle and the battlefield were, in fact, left to chance because Robert E. Lee had such confidence in himself and his army that he was willing to fight the enemy wherever and whenever he found them. As it turned out, the where was Gettysburg, and the when was July 1st. Lee's hubris, of course, is an explanation, not an excuse, for his second command failure, which was allowing the fighting to begin on July 1st without knowing the location of the different elements of the enemy army, and without having his own army closed up and ready for battle. And then Lee's decision to go all-in on the afternoon of July 1st constitutes his third command failure. Lee permitted the renewal of the fighting that afternoon in spite of his lack of intelligence regarding the rest of the Federal Army's whereabouts and in spite of the absence of Longstreet's Corps. In Lee's report, he stated that a battle had, therefore, become in a measure unavoidable and the success gained on July 1st gave the hope of a favorable issue. But those words bear little resemblance to what Lee intended or what in fact occurred, since it was Lee's own decision to go all in on the afternoon of July 1st that committed him to a major confrontation at Gettysburg 
a chance battlefield. And as for the hope of a favorable issue, well, at the close of the day on July 1st, in reality, the net effect of Lee's command failures was that he was significantly disadvantaged, confronting an enemy that occupied what Porter Alexander called a, quote, really wonderful position, end quote, a position with the advantage of interior lines, while Lee's forces were handicapped by long exterior lines, which Lee certainly realized, and is surely the reason he wanted to move Yule's corps. Lee knew his exterior lines would make it difficult for him to launch a coordinated attack on July 2nd, but against his better judgment, he allowed Yule to talk him out of moving the Second Corps. The final thing we wanted to touch upon in this episode is the controversy surrounding Yule's decision not to attack Cemetery Hill on July 1st. In attempting to deflect any blame from Robert E. Lee for his command failures at Gettysburg, a number of lost cause advocates, most noticeably in the Southern Historical Society papers, attempted to scapegoat others, with Jeb Stewart's absence being a major theme of these efforts, but in defending Lee, they also vigorously criticized Dick Yule for not taking Cemetery Hill on July 1st. Written after the facts, during the creation of the Lost Cause tradition, this criticism of Yule has little value with regard to the actual historical record but it nevertheless has been an enduring talking point among students of the battle. It's interesting that what nearly everyone seems most interested in debating is whether Yule would have been successful, when the proper question is whether Dick Yule made a reasonable command decision in the circumstances. In pursuing the question of whether Yule made a rational command decision, we can look at the evidence available in four areas. One, the nature of the terrain. Two, the federal forces opposing Yule. Three, the manpower available to Yule. And four, the orders given to Yule by Robert E. Lee. First, the terrain confronting Yule, as has already been said, was daunting since Cemetery Hill dominated the surrounding ground. Besides the fact that an attacking force advancing uphill against prepared defenders is at a substantial disadvantage anyway. Second, in considering the federal forces defending Cemetery Hill, as has also already been said, there were significant numbers of infantry, probably close to 7,000 men, as well as over 40 pieces of artillery, which covered the ground the Confederates would have to cross during any attack on the heights. In short, there were substantial forces opposing Yule, positioned on imposing terrain. Third, with regard to the manpower available to Yule for the attack on Cemetery Hill, he would not be getting help from A.P. Hill's Corps, as we've already mentioned, then Yule himself was missing Allegheny Johnson's division, which was arriving on the battlefield later. And Confederate accounts, without exception, state that their units had been disorganized by the pursuit of the retreating Federals through Gettysburg, which meant that it wasn't simply a matter of Yule continuing an ongoing attack. No, 
Instead, he'd have to organize his forces and undertake a completely new movement against the heights south of town. Fourth, what were Lee's orders to Yule? Well, Lee's second, more detailed Gettysburg report says, quote, General Yule was instructed to carry the hill occupied by the enemy if he found it practicable, but to avoid a general engagement until the arrival of the other divisions of the army, end quote. All that needs to be pointed out here is that Lee's orders were clearly discretionary, thereby leaving the decision of whether or not to attack Cemetery Hill to Yule. With regard to the Yule-Cemetery Hill controversy, Douglas Southall Freeman, Lee's great advocate, in his book, Lee's Lieutenants, covers this issue in a chapter titled, Yule Cannot Reach a Decision. This is clearly ridiculous, since, although Yule confronted a difficult choice late on the afternoon of July 1st, he did reach a decision. Yule decided not to attack Cemetery Hill. And although it wasn't the decision that Lee wished him to make, we think it was certainly a reasonable decision given the situation. The absence of any help from A.P. Hill's corps, the strong position held by the enemy, and the need to organize a completely new attack and then renew the fighting when Lee's orders were to avoid restarting the battle, well, when taken together, it all convinced Yule that attacking Cemetery Hill wasn't practicable, and we think his decision was certainly reasonable in the circumstances. That means it's time to start to wrap up this episode. We want to remind you there are several ways to support the podcast. You can head over to Patreon and sign up to support the show on a monthly basis, which helps us, and you'll get access to 112 members' episodes and counting, which hopefully you'll enjoy. Then you can always head over to the website and make a one-time donation, or you can find a link on the website to our Tee Public storefront, where you can purchase a podcast t-shirt or two and let everyone know you listen to the show. We appreciate everyone's support, whether it's through Patreon, by making a donation, or with the purchase of a t-shirt. And we do want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who have signed up over on Patreon this past week. Peter, Kara, and Parik. And then a special thank you to Dr. Steve for his gift. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.